Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. We don't know much about the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is one of our minor prophets in the Bible. Zephaniah's prophecies are about the day of the Lord who wrought on by the sins of Judah. All that remain, Zephaniah says, are the people that are humble and lowly who shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord and begin anew. Hear now the end of the book of Zephaniah. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall fear disaster no more. On that day shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing on the day of a festival. I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. I will deal with all your oppressors at that time. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown for all the earth. At that time, I will bring you home. At that time, I will gather you. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Amen. God, in all your tender compassion, the dawn from on high, it will break on us. Shining on those living in shadows, guiding our feet into the way of peace. Let's sing together. You will guide. You will guide our feet. You will guide our feet. You will guide our feet into peace. Once more. You will guide our feet, you will guide our feet, you will guide our feet into peace. 
Every year on the third Sunday of Advent, somebody will invariably ask me after the worship service here, um, what's up with the pink candle on the Advent wreath? Uh, Some of you probably had observed that we just lit a pink candle and were probably planning on asking me after the service, uh, what's up with the pink candle situation? Uh, The first person to ever ask me that question about the pink candle was this 12-year-old boy in my very first church I served. I was six months out of seminary. I was 24 years old. It was my very first Advent and Christmas season as a young pastor. And as a 24-year-old, I had this kid half my age uh, before this large, curious crowd after church asking me why the candle was pink. And in that moment, it suddenly occurred to me, not one of my seminary professors ever mentioned anything (laughs) about the pink candle. And here I was, stumped by this 12-year-old kid and he had me on the ropes right away, and, um, and I knew that his father had put him up to it. His father was always, like, testing to see if I was a legit pastor. And there he was across the room with his arms folded with that familiar smirk on his face, like he got me. And so as a 24-year-old pastor, already sort of feeling um, what we might call that imposter's syndrome, uh, I, I did what any good pastor in that situation would do. I said that uh, the store was out of purple candles. And that I put a pink one in the third spot hoping nobody would notice, right? And the kid wasn't buying it at all. And so I told him the truth. I said, look, um, the candle's pink because Mary really wanted a girl instead of a boy. And everybody was satisfied with that one. Why the pink candle? The third Sunday of Advent is traditionally known as, uh, as Gaudetta Sunday. Gaudetta is a Latin word. It means rejoice. Today you heard that we lighted the candle for joy. Uh, Gaudetta is the first word spoken in the uh, original ancient mass for the third Sunday of Advent. It goes Gaudetta in Dominio Semper, rejoice in the Lord always. But why still, why the pink candle? Well, Advent originally was never intended to be the holly, jolly, Chris Kringley kind of season that we have made it out to be in the modern world. Uh, as late as the 5th century, Advent was known actually as St. Saint, Saint Martin's Lent. Lent. In other words, it was originally this 40-day season of penitence um, where you walk around, you confess your sins, and you repent, and you clean up your act. But by the ninth century, people really got tired of all the long faces and all the repentance, and so they said, you know, look, uh, church, uh, the season before Christmas isn't supposed to be a downer. And so the church, in response, said, uh, okay, we'll cut you a deal. This is my version of history. (laughs) We'll cut you a deal. We still want you to repent and feel really guilty about yourself, uh, but uh, we're going to reduce the the 40 days down to four weeks, and we're going to call it Advent, 
And uh, we're going to give you one Sunday right in the middle of Advent when you can actually be joyful. And so on the third Sunday of Advent, they put this little pink candle and they said, whenever you see the candle, you can show up to church and laugh, smile, have a good time. So happy Gaudetta Sunday. The pink candle is lit and you can smile today. You can have a good time. There's not enough people who experience joy in churches today. Maybe that's why people just don't want to show up to church these days. A mother was trying to get her son to, to get up and go to church one morning, and she said, get up, we're going to church. And he said, I'm not going to church, and I'll give you two reasons. The first, uh, I don't really like the people. And the second, I, uh, people don't really like me. And the mom said, I'll give you two good reasons why you are going to church. First, you're 59 years old. And second, you're the pastor. <laughs> I can relate to that one sometimes. I, uh, um, we are road tripping to Bethlehem in the season of Advent. Why? Because anybody can get to Christmas. I mean, anybody can, can rock out to uh, Mariah Carey and Bing Crosby with all the, the great hits, but we're not trying to just get to Christmas. We're trying to get to a manger, we're trying to get to Bethlehem, where if we do our work, we come to see that we, we behold the face of God, beholding us in joy, smiling in the face of a baby. Our journey throughout Advent so far has led us first to the sea, if you were here. The sea is the biblical symbol of chaos and turmoil, where we ask, where in the turmoil of my life, in the world, do we cry out for a Savior to come and calm the waters and bring peace? Last week, we journeyed to the river which is the biblical symbol of, of cleansing and new life, new possibility on the other side. And there we ask, where in our life, where in our world, do we need God to come to forgive and cleanse and restore us to life? And today we journey, as you can see, to the desert, this biblical symbol of hunger and thirst, the symbol for vulnerability and neediness, a place where we are tested, where we struggle with our identity, with our faith, with God and our relationship. <clears throat> and if you know your Bible, throughout Scripture, the desert is this place of, where, where people must go in order to experience transformation. The desert father is called the desert, uh, a, a furnace of transformation, where they would go to, to lose a part of their false self, and discover their true self. And throughout Scripture, we know people go there. The Jews spent 40 days in the desert or wilderness, wandering, wandering aimlessly, wandering endlessly. Where are we going? Will we ever get there? Where is God in all this mess? But in the desert, the Jews discovered God's law, and they discovered that they could journey in their life by faith and not by sight. Uh, in the desert, you might remember the story of Jacob, the, the rogue 
son of Isaac who confronted in the desert his past and his demons and his fear of the future and his identity. And in that story in the desert, he wrestles with God. He comes to his senses. He sees that he's not the old person. He's a new person. His name will not be Jacob, but Israel. You might remember in the New Testament, Jesus is tested for 40 days in the wilderness or the desert. And there he was, he was tempted by Satan and discovered that he could be nobody else but the one person he was meant to be, God's beloved son and Messiah. In the desert, we experience hunger, we're parched, we, we get disoriented. In the desert, life hangs in the balance and we have to choose which way we're going to go and how we're going to get there. Have you ever been to the desert of your soul, the spiritual landscape of wilderness? As you heard, there's a little book in our Bible called Zephaniah. Zephaniah is one of the shortest books in our Bible. And the Hebrew name Zephaniah means literally God has concealed or hidden. And it's an appropriately named book because Zephaniah is about is about how by outward appearances God seems to be a God of judgment and punishment. But concealed behind that, hidden behind that, is a God of deep mercy and love. A tender God. There are only three chapters in the book of Zephaniah. And all but the last eight verses of this little book are really gloomy. They're unrelentingly dismal and depressing. Uh, And things are so terrible in the world, according to Zephaniah. People are so awful, selfish, unfaithful, that according to Zephaniah, there's nothing left for God to do now except to destroy everything and start over again. It's a little bit like the book of, about the story about Noah and the flood. In the, in, the, in, the, in the history of things, Josiah is the king, and he's made these spiritual reforms, but nobody is honoring them. These people are worshiping God, but then uh, when they think God's not looking, they're bowing down to, to idols like Baal. They're worshiping God, but they don't actually seek to follow God or inquire of God. And so the prophet warns them that God's judgment is coming. And as Reverend Lawrence said, he uses this phrase, the day of the Lord. It is a militaristic reference that goes back into Israel's history, back when they understood that God, Yahweh, was a militaristic God, a warrior God, who would come and fight for the people, Israel. But this time, Zephaniah says, Now, the day of the Lord's a little bit different because this God's not coming to fight for you. He's coming to destroy you. Uh, God's not going to save you this time. God is coming to defeat you. We have this text uh, in the first chapter of Zephaniah. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The warrior cries aloud there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like I said, Zephaniah is a real picker-upper, right? (laughs) Punishment seems inevitable. 
Have you ever been in that moment when you felt like punishment's coming my way? Maybe as a child when you got into trouble and, and you were overcome with that despair or dread as you awaited the impending punishment. I can recall as a young child a few such moments, maybe more than a few, uh, most of which were always characterized by that familiar line my mother would often repeat. I can still hear it after all these years. Wait until your father gets home. <laughs> and then I'd be exiled to my room and I'd be forced to sit and stew in my remorse, my, 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 my guilt, my sorrow, and especially to despair over the inevitable fate of my rear end. Um, the waiting was a big part of the punishment. But worse than the punishment itself was my father's disappointment. I knew even as a child that it was always my father's nature to love me. I knew that it always grieved him deeply to have to mete out the consequences for my action. And so even as a young child, I never doubted that I had it coming. And I never ever doubted my father's repeated claim that this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. It was true. Thank goodness that's old school parenting. And things have changed, I hope. But, but still you know the waiting and the ruminating, the fear of coming punishment. It can be worse than the punishment itself. And that's when we find ourselves in that desert place where we are vulnerable, we're pliable, we're a little bit repentant, and we're longing for a new and better future for ourselves. And the people of Judah, after years of disobedience, are uh, waiting for their father to come home, so to speak. Zephaniah calls it uh, the day of the Lord, when these people must finally face the consequences of their unfaithfulness. Well, they apparently have a long time to wait, according to history. They actually have long enough time to, to repent and change their fate. Scholars believe that Zephaniah was written about 50 years before the Babylonians came in and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, defeated Judah, and then carted off the survivors into exile in Babylon. And that defeat for Judah, that humiliation, was a defining moment in their history. This was the punishment that Zephaniah was foretelling. History says it actually happened. But then we show up today on the third Sunday of Advent, and we have this passage. Did you hear it? It says that it didn't happen, or maybe it didn't happen. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall feel disaster no more. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He'll renew you in his love. Exult over you with loud singing. Wait, what? Do you see the paradox, the contradiction here? We know it happened. Punishment came for them 50 years later. But according to the passage from Zephaniah today, when, when the day of the Lord finally comes to them, 
the punishment they should have coming to them will instead be replaced by mercy and forgiveness. God, he says, will rejoice over you with gladness and renew you in his love, exult over you with loud singing. What's going on here? Some scholars say that the way to resolve this contradiction is, is look, um, the first passage came before the Babylonians and the second passage here came about 50 years later when either they were in exile or even after exile. In other words, uh, we have two different authors from two different periods of history sending two different messages. And that explains everything, right? If you're a historian. But when we come to church, we don't come to do history. We come to do good news. I don't think we're dealing with a before and after story at all. I think what we have here is a story about a God who holds out before us two different options for our future. One is destruction and one is life. One is judgment and one is mercy. And Zephaniah is saying, you have two options. You get to... You get to choose your own adventure here. But nothing is inevitable. Yes, God is coming home. But God's will is not to defeat you. God's nature is not to punish you. God's will is to forgive. And God's nature is to show mercy. God's deepest desire is to rejoice over you with gladness. To sing over you with songs of joy to renew you in his love. In the Hebrew, that word to renew is better translated as to quiet you. You know that moment when, when you're fearing punishment, you, you feel so lost and you're in trouble and you're whimpering, maybe crying. Zephaniah says God wants to quiet you in his love. You see, historians are saying we have two different authors from two different times But what if instead we just have two different options? We get to choose. Do we want to keep running from God until we are defeated by life? Or do we want to return to God and live? Like daughter Zion, we are called to sit in that desert place for a while and to acknowledge our own vulnerability, to acknowledge how far we've wandered from God how desperately we long for God who will come home to us but not to do us harm but to forgive us to meet us with tenderness and mercy. Today so many people fear a wrathful, vengeful, angry God who's out to get them. Others maybe see God as Aristotle did uh, as he called it the unmoved mover who sat back with arms folded and just watched things happen indifferently. It's like that old uh, Bette Midler song, if you're old enough. um, From a distance, remember that song? Um, God is watching us, God is watching us, God is watching us from a distance. No, he isn't. Nice try, Bette Midler. God is not watching us from a distance. Zephaniah says God is is so close to us and so crazy about us. God can't take his eyes off of us. He can't stop singing over us, can't stop beholding us, smiling. 
If only we'll wise up. God takes delight in the forgiven. In the Jewish Talmud, there's this fascinating exchange between the rabbis. And a question is raised by one of the rabbis about whether God prays. What does God pray? And one of the other rabbis says, God's prayer is this. May my mercy overcome my wrath. God's own prayer is that his desire for compassion would be greater than his need for justice. The late writer Lewis Smeads tells this story about his difficulty in dealing with something uh, that he did to his mother long ago. And the Smeads family was very poor and Lewis's father died when um, the father was 31 years old. He left his wife with six kids who she could barely speak English. She had no real working skills. And so she took jobs, washing floors and washing clothes and ironing, scrubbing floors. But in her pride, she never told her kids. Uh, and in Lewis's pride, he, he just wanted to always see her as, as being something like next to God. And he said, I could never, I loved her so much, I could never really distinguish between my mother and God. One day on his way to school, he was in the fourth grade, he sees his mother uh, on somebody's porch scrubbing the floors. And she saw him and he, and he said to her, hi, and she said, hello, Lewis. But he said, he, he, he turned and walked away. And he said, I was ashamed. And I knew she was ashamed. In all of his adult life, he said he was shadowed by shame for having been ashamed of her. And he remembered that moment and the fact that he had once wronged this great woman. And it took him years and years of counseling to discover that the depression that he suffered most of his life was related to the guilt that he felt over that event until he said he finally found mercy and grace. And he writes, alone, dangling over the edge, falling where nobody could rescue me with the good news that I was good enough for them to approve of me, I fell into my own abyss. But he said eventually he fell so far that he fell into the arms of God, into the hands of God. And he asks in his book, have you ever fallen into the hands of God? Have you fallen into the love that accepts you with no reference to your deserving? Have you fallen into the hands of God, the forgiver? But Judah, Judah had a choice to fall into the hands of God, but it chose otherwise. And if we're honest, most of the time, we do too. This is the story of humanity. This is a story that God understood about humanity. And so God comes up with this better plan. If, if, if we weren't inclined to fall into the hands of God, then God, it turned out, would choose to fall into the hands of us in the form of a fragile baby in Bethlehem. This is the Christian message. This is the, Christ, the Christmas message. Until we choose to fall into God's hands, God will fall into ours. Salvation 
and mercy will come to us because whether it's us in God's hands or God in ours, we, we get to behold the face of God, beholding us, smiling. This is the good news of our faith. God holds before us justice, mercy. And we get to choose every day of our lives. Every day. Will we keep running from God until we are defeated by life? Or will we return to God who longs to rejoice over us with gladness? Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.